Hello, it's Charlotte's sister, C. Farrell, host of Powered by Age, Canada's longest-running senior-led podcast that invites you to do what you love. This podcast is for you if you love writing or telling stories, if you love sharing poetry or doing interviews. This podcast is for you if you love working on ways to create age-friendly cities. This podcast is for you if you love learning how to tame technology and get more out of virtual events, if you love finding more ways to share your heritage or traditions. If you love any of these things, you can go beyond listening and join our weekly podcast group. Simply email pbaafc at gmail.com and put your name in the subject line. Powered by Age is sponsored by the Government of Canada, New Horizons Grant, the 411 Senior Center Society, and GNF Financial Group. Welcome to Powered by Age. Canada's longest-running senior-led podcast. Uh, this week, it's me again, producer Jesse, uh, talking to you from the past as I produced this uh, a couple weeks ago, as I'm currently in Europe. Uh, and so we're going to take another trip through some of the best moments of the Powered by Age podcast over the last couple of years. Uh, and this week, we're focusing on some great guests that have showed up on the podcast. Uh, and we're going to start with the appearance from Season 3, Episode 7, of Shibani Gokale, who is a uh, journalist who uh, came on the podcast to talk about a whole bunch of things, including, uh, at the time, the farmers' protests in India, anti-Asian racism, uh, a whole bunch of stuff. So without further ado, I will uh, hand things over to Nancy to introduce Shibani, and I'll talk to you afterwards. So our guest today is Shibani Gokale. She's a video journalist based in Vancouver, Canada. She primarily works as an associate editor for Yahoo News Canada and is also a video contributor to the Daily High Vancouver, CBC Creator Network, and The Quint. She has a master's in journalism degree from Columbia University. She's previously worked as a digital journalist at Attention in Los Angeles. And um, she can also be found on Instagram, and we will send that information out to you later. And we are just absolutely delighted to have her with us today as we celebrate and recognize Asian Heritage Month. And she's going to bring some topics of discussion to the table for us to enlighten ourselves, um, expand our awareness, find out what we can do to, to make things a much more positive experience for everybody. So please welcome Shivani. Thank you so much um, for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, so nice to hear everyone's bios. And it's so cool to hear that you've all, you know, lived in different provinces uh, and you've traveled so much through Canada. Um, I actually, I, I was in Canada when I was a kid because uh, my dad's a Canadian citizen. So I was in Toronto for a while. Um, and then I went to India to be with my mom, who's a doctor over there. So she's like on the front lines right now fighting COVID. Um, and then I went to law school in India and then I did my master's in the U.S., worked there for a little while. And then I finally decided because, you know, my dad was like, you have to go back to Canada. Um, so I finally decided to come back to Canada and chose Vancouver just because, you know, the beach and stuff. <laughs> How long have you been back in Vancouver, Shiman? Um, It's been over a year now. So and I've been I was with Yahoo even a year before I started here. So it's. Um, that was the main reason that I was moving to Canada is that I was already working for Yahoo Canada. So it made more sense to just make the move happen. Oh, gosh. 
And you okay. mentioned your mom okay. in the front line there, hey? Yeah, she's a doctor in India. Yeah, so she she got COVID. She was even admitted, but you know she's a formidable Ooh, woman, so wow. she's back fighting it again. Yeah. So is she um um, well, what part of India is that? I, I've been I've been in India for a few months. So. Oh, um, it's in Pune, which is like three hours away from Mumbai. Oh yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's really beautiful. It's a really pretty city. Well, Pune, yeah, and that, that, yeah. that's a university town, isn't it? Yes, yeah. It, it used to be called the Oxford of the East. That's what they used to call. I went to law school there, actually, in Pune. Oh yeah, uh, uh, an old colleague of mine, Harry, Harry Ockel from Mauritius. He uh, he studied in Pune. Oh, cool. Yeah, Pune University is huge, and it's really well known. Yeah, yeah. Shabani, before I leave you. Which beach do you like? <laughs> oh, well, we live five minutes away from Kitsilano Beach, so I oh. have to say kids because, like, it's so close, so we go there very often. I'm in the same hood. <laughs> really? You're in kids? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, we should you, we should plan to meet once, you know, COVID settles down. I have down. a copy over at the Boathouse, eh? Okay. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Thank you, Gail. Thank you. So, Shivani, we're really very honored and very excited to have you spend time with us today to, to like I said earlier, expand our awareness about Asian Heritage Month. And, and so I'm just going to ask you to start with if perhaps your first um, inspiration that you'd like to share with us, just like I say, from a perspective of, of what's occurring, what, what, the, what it is that we can benefit from in terms of learning and understanding. I know we, when we had previous discussions, we had about two or three topics in particular that were really mainstay that are important for us to bring up to focus. But I'd just like you to start off with whatever feels, you know, you feel inspired to share. Um, you know, one thing is, of course, because of COVID, I feel like Asian people here are almost under attack right now because like, that's the first thing that people think is, oh, COVID started in China. It's automatically the fault of all Asian people. And then, you know, they're being targeted with a lot of racist attacks. Um, one figure, you know, it's a really damning figure that one people should keep in mind is that uh, hate crimes against Asians went up 717% in just Vancouver in the last year alone. That's it just Vancouver and over 1,100 people, maybe more now, because this research was done like a month ago across Canada reported being uh, subjected to like racist attacks, all Asian people. Um, and it's, it's really heartbreaking. There are also videos, you know, that have gone viral of people being targeted, of being told, go back to your country, you brought COVID. Um, there are reports of like people spitting on Asians on the street or like coughing on them to say sort of like, well, you gave me COVID, so like I'm going to spit on you, you deserve all of these germs. Um, and I think one really important thing for everyone to keep in mind is that we cannot attribute the fault of the government to the people here. For example, if you want to blame the government of China, then it's not the fault of the Chinese people who are living in Canada. They didn't do anything. Neither is it the fault of like regular Chinese citizens in China. You know, it's just it's the fault of the government. It's almost like saying, well, if you don't like Trump, you know, all Americans are bad. Or if you don't like Trudeau, then all Canadians are bad. But that's that's not how it works. It's like it's the fault of the government and cannot be. And the regular people cannot be targeted for this, especially those that have never even been to China. There are so many um, Asian immigrants who've never even been to their home countries like they're fully assimilated in North American culture. So for them being told, go back to your country is sort of, it's so hurtful to feel like you grow up here, you identify Canada as your home country. You think that there's nothing 
there's no other country greater than Canada. And then to be told that, you know, you don't deserve to be here. It's a really hurtful experience for anyone to go through. And I think that's one thing that, you know, definitely helps is to remember that it's not the fault of the people if the government messed something up. So that's one statistic that I definitely, you know, want to talk about the 717%. That's a shocking statistic. Shocking. Yeah. And you yeah. said just in Vancouver alone, mm-hmm. you're 717%. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. not imaginable. No, it's, it's insane. It just makes me think how many people are going through it. And, you know, there's this misconception also that uh, COVID uh, was the reason that people are being subjected to attacks. But that's not really true. You know, like Asian people have always been subjected to some sort of racism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Asian women are so often sexualized. And, yeah. you know, people say that racism and sexualization is separate, but it's, it's really not. They're being sexualized because of their race. That's... Yeah. It may not be an overt form of racism in the sense that you're not hitting them or killing them, but it's still it's still racism in some form. Of, or, you know, in Atlanta, the shooting that happened, that guy, he said he was a sex addict and he shot the women to reduce temptation. So definitely racism and sexualization are connected. And that's something that yeah. Asian women have been facing for years. And when you mentioned earlier about, um, you know, it's not the fault of the citizens, it's not the fault of, of, of the the people themselves, it's the government. So what is your take in terms of what our government is doing to to plead ignorance to that? Like, what is their responsibility to step up to the plate so that we can, you know, eradicate these misconceptions? Well, one thing I think legislation is really useful. Very recently, Biden passed uh, an anti-Asian hate crime law. It doesn't do anything directly, right? All of these are still Mm -hmm. crimes, but For example, spitting on someone, it may or may not be considered a crime in court. Like, it's very easy to argue. But if we just come up with a new law that says that, no, spitting on people, um, especially during a pandemic, taking our mask off, coughing on people are all crimes, then I think it would help Asian people. Because the biggest attack that Asian people are suffering right now is people coughing and spitting on them. And I think if we can somehow... Um, you know, legalize that, have it codified into a law, then I think they would have grounds to go to court to say that, look, this guy coughed on me. And right now, that's almost like a death sentence. Because what if I get COVID? What if I die? So um, then maybe we can codify that. I wonder, I wonder if, um, uh, if there's something in the criminal code, because I just heard a policeman on CBC News uh, when that woman was spat at. Um, he said... You know, um, spitting on people is considered assault. Yeah, spitting is, coughing isn't. And I think coughing is something that definitely should. Yeah. Obviously, because like coughing, you know, before COVID well, wasn't yeah. that big of a deal. But now, you know, of course it is. Well, the point is, is that you have to look at intent. Of course. Yes, of course. Yeah. Yes. If you if you cough on someone by mistake, it's not necessarily, um, you should have to go and, and you're all embarrassed. But if you cough on people in a hateful manner, that's another story. Yes. Um, you know, and another great advice I have is uh, is if you see an Asian, like if you see an Asian person being attacked, then you should definitely try and step up. Don't get oh, aggressive. Absolutely. Like, yeah, don't don't put your own life in danger. Never. That's not good. But, you know, I feel like as Canadian citizens or as white people, I feel like there's um, the attacker might listen to a white person more than they would an yeah. Asian person, yeah. which, yeah. you know, is sad, but it is, you know, it is what it is. And um, yeah. that is something that would help or like or like if the easiest thing to do is just take your phone out and record them. So at least the police can later identify who the perpetrators were. So stuff like this is also a good way to combat attacks on the street. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I had a a question too for you, Shabana. You'd mentioned that in some cases, people don't necessarily realize that uh, individuals and citizens from 
um, India and Pakistan are also considered Asian. So there's some misconception. Could you speak to that a little bit for us, please? For sure. I feel like Indians, um, it happens to me sometimes if I say I'm um, Asian, people are like, you're not Asian. I'm like, no, but I am. I'm Indian. And India is still an Asian. So we're technically all Asians. We are often referred to as South Asians. Uh, but one thing, you know, to keep in mind is that COVID right now is escalating in India. It's at one of the wor- it's I think the worst outbreak in the entire world is happening in India right now. People are dying every day. Um, the variant that's the B one seven one variant, that's the really mutant variant that's killing people essentially, started in India first. And people here are calling it the Indian variant, which is now going to give rise to an increase in hate crimes against Indians. And that is something to keep in mind that we are still all Asians. And, you know, China is our neighbor. You know, like India and China, we share a border. So if some yeah. if something happens in China, then India is like the first place that may, might suffer because of it. Like if a virus starts in China, then India is automatically the first country that will suffer because there's just so much travel that happens between China and India. So I do think that India or Pakistan or Bangladesh should not be left out of the conversation when we talk about hate crimes against Asians, because India is going through a lot of the same things. Should those countries also be included in talking about the contributions to Canada? Oh, for sure. I feel like the immigrants, the maximum number of immigrants are from India, Pakistan, China. Um, and of, of course, like they've done so much. Like right now, you know, we have Jagmeet Singh, who's like the NDP leader um, in uh, in Burnaby, I think. And he, you know, is yeah. of Indian origin. Um, so stuff like that. I do think that Indians are doing really well in Canada. They've contributed greatly to Canada's economy, to Canada's politics. So definitely, I think all of Asia should be considered as like a good contributor to Canada in general. <laughs> you know, uh, you know I, I would like to add something. And that is, is that... Without embracing the other cultures that exist, not only in our country, but there's all kinds of, um, you, we, we shortchange ourselves. Like the Bhagavad Gita is the most beautiful, uh, I can quote you from the Gita because it is such a beautiful, beautiful book. And, and the same Mariko, Ogenki Deska. You know, it's like the she, the Japanese have a beautiful culture, and 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 I, I happen to share my life with a Chinese lady, and so I speak reasonably good. Well, a little bit of Chinese. Oh wow, that's amazing. But that's what our government should be suggesting, is that these other cultures and these other ideas really make up the Canadian culture and idea because we're all immigrants. We're all immigrants in some way, shape, or my mother, uh, Canadian-born, but in St. Catharines, but, but my father from Derbyshire, England, and my grandfather from Wicklow in, in, in Ireland. And, you know, it's like, uh, that, that is what bothers me, is that if we try and exclude other cultures, we leave out a part of... A, of of what it is to be a human being and uh, uh, I am the ritual and the worship the medicine and the mantra I am the butter burned in the fire is the most beautiful description of God that I've ever read anywhere you have such a a nice way with words I really like it (laughs) 
Yeah, he's a, he's Neil's a poet. My um, a and friend of mine, a sick friend of mine, his family got to Canada five years before my family got to Canada from Ukraine. So give me a break. Um, a lot of Asian people I see on the street have been here for generations. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Canada is their home. Like they don't know um, oh, life outside almost. Yeah. That's that's exactly right. Yeah. 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 I know we're talking about all cultures are valid, and one of the reasons that Canada and across the country we have different months dedicated to different ethnicities or, or world regions is just so that people can have a special time to give more information that's not commonly often heard. So I think Shikhani has a, a particular appeal related to India that she wanted to make and something else to share um, yeah, for sure. I feel like it's really important to acknowledge people, um, you know, like we have Mother's Day, we have Father's Day, it's important to have those so that, you know, you take a day out of your life to sort of acknowledge your mom, acknowledge your dad. I think it's also important to have a day where you acknowledge ethnicities, just because they're not the they're not considered to be the main ethnicities, or they're the minority, sometimes they get overlooked. So I do think it's really important in this month. And in this month, you know, you can do things like, for example, because it's like Asian Heritage Month, you can do things like, oh, maybe you have sushi and you go to a local Japanese owned restaurant here or you go go to a gra- Asian grocery store. You'll try boba tea. You'll try something from the Asian culture that you've never tried. Um, maybe you can reach out to, to an Asian person, try to become friends with them, just like get to know how their life is. Most people are not offended if you ask questions. Of course, you should ask them if they're open to you know, talking or answering your questions. But if they are, then I think it's a great way to sort of assimilate into the culture. Um, I also think, you know, with Asians and with immigrants in general, there is this sort of tendency to sort of stick together. Like people don't want to interact with other communities either. Like, for example, so many Indians I know, they don't want to interact with people outside of their own Indian communities. It's because there's like a fear of acceptance. Like they think that, oh, well, if I go and interact with a bunch of white people and they talk about things that I don't understand, like I'm going to feel left out. So I feel like if you if there is an Asian person in your group and you feel like they're not understanding all the references and trying and making sure that, oh, like bring them into the conversation. Like if you're talking about a show that maybe aired in Canada that an immigrant will not have watched, you can say that, oh, this is a show that aired in the 80s. And, you know, this is what we're talking about. It can be annoying. I get that. But it's also a good way to include people into the fold and make them feel like, oh, OK, I'm a part of this. Like I'm not just an outsider looking in. So that's something that also works with like immigrants um, and people of color in general. It can be. I was just having that discussion with somebody in another group yesterday, and we were talking about that specific thing. And and the different the example actually we were talking about in in spiritual communities or spiritual centers, churches, and things, and and wanting to make other feel other people feel welcome. And and they were talking about the benefit right now of being online through Zoom, and in some cases how conversations and people's relationships have become more intimate because we're we're more closely gathered and as much as when we're in a physical space, you know, everybody's there for the same reason, but there's a little bit of intimidation or perhaps lack of confidence. Sometimes you feel like a person might feel like they're intruding. They might not have the self-confidence to feel like, you know, they don't want to interrupt or they might be thinking in the back of their mind, well, you know, who am I to go in and to join in? They might not want me there. And, and I recall having that experience when I was in networking meetings years ago in different types of businesses. So I would go to something and go to an event, you know, and, and, 
and there was an intimidation as much as I'm very confident about a lot of things. I sometimes felt like I was being intrusive or I was waiting mm. for them to welcome me in because they seemed like they, they'd been there, you know, forever. They knew what they were doing. I was missing part of the program or something. And so I think it maybe works on both sides. We, we might not be, you know, extending ourselves to, to welcome other people, not because we're afraid to in a sense of, of being concerned that, um, that there's something different about them, but that we lack the confidence to feel that, you know, do they really want to hear from me? So I, I don't know if you have any particular tips or, you know, of, of, of different ways that we could, could look at that. Um, I think one easy way is to try and start a one-on-one conversation with someone who feels excluded, maybe, or, or you know, that if you feel like someone's being excluded, like maybe just reach out to them personally, be like, hey, can we set a time aside to chat, talk to them, like ask them about their experiences. And maybe you can just ask them like, oh, if you're feeling like excluded, is there anything that I can do to help you feel like you're a part of the conversation? This is something that we work really often, but we used to back when I was in Los Angeles, because we had a lot of immigrants, a lot of people of color, we used to work together. It was like a hot pot. So we basically would set time aside and ask them like, hey, like, do you need something from us uh, to bring you into the fold? Like, is there something you're not understanding? And how can we improve your experience? So that's definitely something that that can be done is to just initiate more one-on-one conversations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's fabulous. I was going to ask, you have such a variety of journalism experiences and you're doing something new with social media and video. Can you share with some, us because we have a number of people within our group who are writers, what are some of the things that you do in using social media? Um, well, I think uh, one thing that you need to do, you know, like I've been doing when I first started, uh, when I, I studied journalism at Columbia University, when I studied journalism, you know, we were more focused on traditional journalism, like print media, like newspapers and TV journalism. So news stations. But, you know, even in the one year that I graduated, the scope of journalism had changed so much. So much of journalism had moved to Facebook, to Twitter, to Instagram. And I think I didn't get formal education in digital journalism. So we just sort of had to adapt, like learn, okay, this is how videos do well on Twitter. This is how videos do well on Facebook. So I think the best way to adapt is to just sort of keep using it. Um, I have a fail fast mentality. So it's like, do something. If it fails, it fails. Just restart, retry, retry it in a different way. Um, don't repeat it. Uh, we call that fail fasting in um, in digital media. So we do that a lot. Like, okay, let's just put this video out and then we'll see if it does well. Let's publish this article. If it doesn't do well, we'll scrap it. We'll restart and do something else. And I think that's the best way with social media because it keeps changing. Um, so, you know, when I first started at Attention, we were focused on Facebook videos. And now that I'm working with Daily High Vancouver, we are focused on Instagram videos. So in just in just two years, the platform has changed so much. And the mm-hmm. only way to adapt really is to keep using it. So it's to keep like make Instagram accounts, like keep posting something, figure out how it works, tinker with it a little bit. Um, and that's that's the best way to stay on top of technology, I think. Yeah. What is daily high for people who might not know? You're reading my mind, Charlotte. So daily hive is like a Vancouver based media company. Um, it's like a startup uh, and it's focused mostly on digital media. So they don't have newspapers. They don't have magazines. They have a website. Uh, I can send you a link to the website and it's, it's, it has a lot of like younger perspectives 
Um, so basically, like 20 things to do in Vancouver this weekend. Like, uh, go check out the Imagine Van Gogh Museum. Like, this is where you can go buy the best butter chicken in Vancouver. So stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But we also do hard news. Like, I made videos about Asian mm-hmm. hate crimes, um, about Canada's mm-hmm. vaccination rollout, about uh, India's COVID nineteen crisis. So it's like a it's like a mix um, so that it tries to cater to all audiences. And it's mm-hmm. the biggest on Instagram. I think Daily Hive does the most numbers on Instagram. Um, and it's really cool, especially if you're based in BC, like we do like very specific BC related news. So like with vaccinations, for example, then we would have like an exact chart about how you can book your vaccines in BC, which pharmacies have the vaccines, et cetera, et cetera. So daily is great. If you know, if you like using technology, if you like using your phone and you want to get some news, you want to get some information, then daily hive is great for that. How can people within our group who write or do things that might not, can anybody submit stuff to Daily Hive? Yeah, so I think on their website, there's uh, there's this one email that has like info at Daily Hive. So in there, you can like send in pitches, like be like, hey, um, you know, we have this idea. Or you can be like, you know, um, if you want, you could like approach someone at Daily Hive. Maybe I can give you someone's email if someone wants to talk about it. Um, and you can be like, we think that a column for senior citizens would do really well here. And then you can, you know, sort of pitch that idea and work it out uh, with the editor. That's how it happened for me. I just reached out to the editor on LinkedIn and I was like, um, hey, you know, I have this idea for videos and I think that it would do well with you guys. So although I work for Yahoo, um, they were like, you know what? Yeah, let's try it out. And then that's how we started doing it with Daily Hive. I don't primarily work for Daily Hive. I'm, I'm employed at Yahoo. So that's where I do most of my work. Yeah. I have a question for you, Shabani. Um, the government uh, in the last couple of years have been putting out these little heritage moments uh, showcasing uh, Asian immigration to uh, Canada. And, and I wonder, uh, how are they doing? Well, I do think the Canadian government is doing a good job as far as immigrants um, are welcomed here. It's uh, especially Trudeau. You know, I feel like he's quite open in general. He um, has more of a liberal attitude, especially J- uh, Jagmeet. So in Vancouver or in BC, it's not that much of a problem because Jagmeet is, you know, so welcoming and he's so open. Um, and I think he tries to keep the liberal government in check, too, because he's always talking about discrimination. He's a really vocal supporter of all communities of color. Um, so I do think that having someone like Jagmeet in the in the government has actually been super great, not just for Indians or for Asians, just for any person of color, because he's so, so vocal about it. And I think that's important. Even if, you know, NDP is not the biggest party in Canada right now, I think it is so important to have opposition that can at least keep countering or keep checking the government um, on their biases, I guess, or their prejudices, which I think Jagmeet does admirably well. And I feel like Trudeau does try. I will say that. I do think that he wants to genuinely be welcoming to immigrants. And I do think that there is an effort there, which is, you know, having lived in America, I can say for sure that I don't see that effort in with the American government to welcome immigrants. With Canada, mm-hmm. I feel like there's an effort there. Whether or not yeah. it's executed properly, you know, depends from province to province. But I, I do at least see an intention and an effort, which I really like. Another reason that, you know, we decided to move to Canada, I just feel like it's a more welcoming and they're just genuinely more interested in trying to do better. Universal health care. <laughs> yes, of course. That's, that goes without saying. Yeah, goes without, especially after living in America, goes without saying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What about from a spiritual perspective? I know that uh, weddings, a lot of weddings were canceled. Yesterday they said people can have weddings again. But uh, how do you find tolerance towards religious practices from India in within Vancouver, Canada? Um, I feel like 
there is some there's there, there can be but you know can, again like indians for example have settled so much into surrey um so many indians live in surrey like they live in their own bubbles so they are not really subjected to too much victimization over this but i do think that there is a lot of um something that we're talking about a lot lately is cultural appropriation um so what's okay and what's not okay for people to participate in when it comes to like indian or asian uh, religion especially like japanese is one you know they have their really, really own specific culture um similar to like how indians have their own culture so when is it okay for uh, canadians who are not indians to wear like indian outfits so if you're going to a wedding an indian person's wedding uh, and then you wear an indian outfit that's totally fine but if you wear an indian outfit generally to walk on the street without mm. being aware of the origins or without respecting the culture then that's where it's problematic so i think that there's like a mix um some people do tend to make fun of like indian weddings like oh like what is this how do you have a seven days long wedding like it doesn't make any sense we just have a one day wedding and i feel like again it comes from the perspective of being open um and i think it comes from a perspective of not being offended so if like an indian person um you know i think couple of celebrities they got in trouble because they were wearing the indian bindis uh which you know are symbols of like religious married women in india so even i wouldn't wear a bindi because i'm not i don't subscribe to that religious ideology myself so i i don't think it's right for me to be wearing it as a fashion statement mm-hmm. so you know a lot of celebrities got called out for that and i think those are things and they got really defensive and they got really angry and i think that's the problem like if you can do something if it's a mistake then just own up to it and don't repeat it and i think that's that's what we need not just a welcoming attitude but welcoming constructive criticism so if like people of color say that hey this is really hurting us don't do it then just be open to it because you're not in their shoes so you don't know what they're going through so that's that's you know another advice that i would have yeah do, do you think that uh education in the schools etc cetera, etc cetera, is um uh useful uh, some of the programming in schools is useful to um fight against this this people are just so ignorant it's just shocking what people say oh yes i i was yeah i was going to bring that up i think that the schooling system does need to improve while talking about other cultures i think there should actually be a whole subject that discusses other cultures because i have friends indian friends who grew up being called um curry munchers or they grew up calling like curry girls or like they're told that like you're you're darky stuff like that or like i've asian friends um who've been called chinks and stuff like that these are all slurs that you shouldn't really call them um these things and i think that that and these are kids right they where are they learning this from probably their parents or or it's a like group yeah. mentality they don't really know the hurt but I have friends who've heard these things they're still hurt by it because of something one silly boy said to them in 5th grade like I still have friends like who feel sad when they think of that incident so I think schooling mm-hmm. and talking about cultures talking to kids when they're younger about the words that they use the things they say to to people of color like students of color I think would really really helps to to not have kids grow up with like a victimized mentality because then what happens is if we get bullied in school we grow up assuming yep. that everyone's going to bully us and that may not necessarily happen but then it kind of creates like a uh, a barrier between mm-hmm. say white people and between people of color because like we grow up thinking that oh every single white person's going to bully me at some point but that's not really true right mm-hmm. but i think that happens because of school because like you mm-hmm. you grow up hearing those things so i do think that schooling um is really really important and i wish that all students would stop bullying students of color because it's incredibly damaging in the long run and uh, that's something that has happened uh with black people being 
made fun of about our hair or people saying, you know, small children, you know, is that color going to wash off? Uh, living through a time where there were uh, laws, that, you know, practices where people would clean the whole, drain the whole pool if a black person or a person of color uh, swam in that pool. But, you know, in this show is also going to be heard in the Speak Up, Listen Up, Act Upon. What can people do to get the schools to do things because the school, it doesn't just happen. What could parents or people do to have the schools begin to ask for, include this cultural education, cross-cultural education? So, okay, I think one thing really, really helps and it's an underrated way of changing things. Um, it is, be, uh, is petitions. I think signing petitions is an underrated way of bringing about change, but it does bring about change. For example, if one mom, um, say she is like a black mother or an Indian mother. She feels like her child is being bullied. If she starts a petition, then for other white people who um, may not understand to like listen to her, to sign the petition, to give support to the parents, like the, the parents of color who are trying to bring about change, I think that other parents need to support them. If parents of color are saying that, hey, my child is being bullied in school, then I think that other white parents need to listen to them and be like, you know mm -hmm. what, I support you. Like what policy change would you like in school? And I will stand by that. I will support yeah. you. And I think that will bring about change. Signing petitions, sending email to deans, um, saying stuff like, you can even threaten schools, right? Like if 20 parents say that we will take the child out of your school, if you do not uh, implement these changes, that's a big threat. Like schools will likely at some point have to implement that change because they don't want to lose um, their kids. They don't want to lose all the fees that they're getting. So that's something that can be done is just like reaching out to deans or another way is social media. You know, if you see something bad happen, expose them. Um, you know, there were lots of incidences in America where black girls, you know, they uh, little girls, you know, who's who uh, were made fun of because of their braids or because of their hair. And the mothers, they basically shamed the people. They posted photos on Instagram. They posted photos on Twitter, on Facebook. Yeah. They shamed the school. They shamed the perpetrators. And it went so viral that the school had to issue apologies and the school had to, Good. you know, institute a whole class. So I think that that is something that helps is using social media and signing petitions. Oh, there's just so much in that conversation. Uh, I gave you a big chunk of it there, but uh, you can find all of these episodes. If you want to listen to the whole thing, you can go to poweredbyage.com or just look anywhere you find podcasts. They're, they're there, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, uh, uh, Spotify even. Yeah, all over the place. Uh, up next, we are going to hear from author Doretta Lau, who appeared on Season 3, Episode 5 as part of uh, the Asian Heritage Month celebrations from the Powered by Age podcast. Uh, yeah, let's just get right into that. Today, we have a special guest. We have Doretta Law, who is the author of the short story collection, How Does a Single Blade of Grass Thank the Sun? Interesting question. And she is also uh, author of a poetry chapbook called Cause and Effect, and she's writing a comedic novel about an in inept company struggling to open a theme park about death. Death is a subject that we've talked about, so it'll be interesting when we're able to support her in that project. Uh, Doretta, we, we will uh, have you introduce yourself, but first the thing we do at the beginning is have everyone just say your name, and if you could say one thing that you love about books or writing. We'll start with Anne. My name is Anne Drozd, and one of the things I like about books 
is that they take me to different places and different times and introduce me to different people. People I don't meet every day. Aideen, would you introduce yourself? Uh, hi, I'm Aideen Dufour. Sorry I missed last week, something came up. Uh, one of the things I love about books, I guess, I love history. And so I, I really love books that will take me back in time to the Middle Ages, and I just get totally lost in that. I love it. Mm. Thank you. Nancy? I'm Nancy Sinclair, and I love, I love the feel of a book. <laughs> I love the feel of a book. And I love um, studying. I love learning. And in particular, some of my main interests are personal development and spirituality. So I just I love getting absorbed in books, but I love the, the tactile feel of the book. Okay, Chris? Uh, for, I'm, I'm Chris Morrissey, and um, I'm going to follow on with Nancy. What I've discovered are the audiobooks from the Vancouver Public Library. And so what I've enjoyed about books is being able to select a book and be able to have it with me and walk around the house and do whatever I'm doing and continue to read, listen to my book. Thank you. It's been great. Uh, Diane? I love it. Um, I'm Diane Babcock, and I like I love books I always have since I can't. That was one of my favorite pastimes was reading, and I still actually have the volume set, the Young Folks uh, classic from when I was a kid, the same ones I read. So they are very old, and um, I learned a lot about, you know, a lot of wonder and magic is one of my favorite subjects. And also these days, it's more about understanding that it's not so unbelievable. Now I'm understanding the quantum behind it. And I like books for learning. And I like to actually collect books as well. I do collect books. I have a huge bookcase on the other side of this wall. <laughs> well, and it's a real one, not a screenshot. <laughs> a background. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Jesse? Yeah, I'm Jesse, and uh, I, I mean, I've always loved books. I, I love to get lost in a book and uh, just be transported somewhere else. I, I have also, over the course of the pandemic, reconnected with my public library, and I think I've read more ebooks in the last 14 months than I had in the previous previous like five years. So it's been nice to catch up on uh, a whole lot of stories. Thank you. And so now that brings us to our star of the hour. Uh, thank you so much, Doretta Law, for taking time to talk with us. You are a prolific writer. What fuels your writing interests? Thank you, Charlotte, and thank you, everyone, for sharing everything about you know, your, your reading and your passions. Um, I think I just really also like stories. Um, I think like everyone here, um, I love that kind of place travel and time travel that we can have through reading. Um, and so that kind of transfers to the writing. I'm always thinking about how uh, when we write, we are um, 
in many ways in conversation with the writers that we read. You know, it's just like, you know, I joke a lot that, you know, George Saunders doesn't know it, but, you know, I've been having a one-sided conversation with him through the stories I write uh, since grad school. Um, so I think it's just this way of being able to participate in something that I love so much, which is reading, um, and to be able to make something for other people who also like reading, um, to be able to enjoy and think about and hopefully bring people um, just like some fun in their lives and also to provide a kind of um, connection for sometimes some of the difficulties that, that we face and to really just kind of have that feeling that we're not alone. I think, um, you know, earlier uh, when you were telling me about um, how this podcast came to be and how, you know, it, it's a way that has alleviated loneliness. In some ways, I feel like as readers, um, we're never alone because we have these amazing characters that are part of our lives and um, our imaginations kind of allow us to connect to these emotions that we might not be able to uh, feel, uh, you know, in person during a pandemic or because um, we're stuck at home for other reasons. So, yeah, that's, I guess, uh, a long way of saying that writing is just so transformative for me. And that's why I keep going back to it. Now, speaking of reading, are you going to share a bit of one of your books with us? Yes. So um, I'm going to read from my short story collection. Uh, listeners won't be able to see, but I'll show the cover to everyone who's in the Zoom. Um, so my book's called How Does a Single Blade of Grass Thank the Sun? Um, it's a short story collection. And I'm going to read uh, five minutes from a story called Writing in Light. Um, and it's a story about looking at uh, the work of Vancouver artist Jeff Wall. Um, so, writing in light. One, Curtis called me at 9.30, waking me. I pretended I had been awake for hours, but he knew better, despite having met me only twice. A few days earlier, he had promised he would take me through Jeff Wall's latest New York exhibition before it closed, but we hadn't confirmed our appointment. Good morning. I meant to wake you, Curtis said. I'm at the gallery. They want to shut off the power, so you should arrive on the early side of 10.30, say 10.15. 10.15, I repeated. See you then. I removed a book about Robert Smithson from a pile of clothes sitting on a chair so I could find the black dress I wanted to wear. For the last few months, I'd been thinking about Smithson's art, dinosaurs, fossils, and skeletons. Somehow I believed that these elements would work in my thesis screenplay, though I wasn't sure what story I was trying to tell. I dressed quickly, but I was careful to look, as my mother might put it, presentable in case I needed to deal with a gallery assistant. Girls who sat at the front desk of art galleries scared me, more so than record store clerks once did. Many things frightened me during this time, germs, vampires, suspension bridges, but I feared people the most. I discovered it was warmer on the street than in my apartment. My room faced a courtyard that didn't get much sunlight. An ex-boyfriend believed that an episode of Law & Order had been shot below my window last year. It seemed like there was always a television show or a movie being filmed in our neighborhood, and that I was moving between reality and fantasy whenever I left home. Although the walk to the 116th Street subway station was a short one, I began to wonder if I would make it to the gallery located midtown by 1015. 
For a moment, I considered taking a taxi, a luxury I could rarely indulge in, but the urge to be economical overrode the need to be on time. I walked to the subway stop and waited on the platform. The train seemed to take forever to come, a trick of perception. I leaned forward to see if I could spot the lights. It was dark in the tunnel. I began thinking of Jeff Wall's double self-portrait, 1979. Two, in double self-portrait, the artist looks at us from the corner of his eye. There are two Jeffs in the photograph, one wearing a white shirt with the sleeves rolled up, one in indigo rinsed jeans and a gray sweatshirt with sleeves pushed back. The Jeff in jeans is wearing a watch. The other Jeff, the one in the white shirt, has his arms crossed, so it's impossible to know if there is a timepiece on either wrist. Behind the two Jeffs is a couch with a pink blanket on it. Jeff with a watch, the one who possesses the technology to measure the passing of time, is touching a Papasan chair that's missing its cushion. The chair is white and looks to me like bleach bones in the desert. The man and his doppelganger are positioned within a room, perhaps located in a building in Vancouver, but that is of little importance. What matters is the look on Jeff's face, the way he is peering at us, out at us, peering in at him. Three, on the train, there was a sleeping couple sprawled on the seats across from me. During my first semester of grad school, I took a photography class with Thomas Roma, who often quoted Robert Frost in his classroom critiques. When I looked at Roma's photographs, even the ones of gospel singers and lovers asleep on the subway, I thought of Frost's poetry. One afternoon, two days after I cried during his critique of my photographs, Roma told me he thought writing and photography were the most similar of all the arts. He was certain that taking photographs would help me with my writing. He had once compiled a collection of photographs thinking only of Norman Mailer while he worked. That night, while reading a textbook for a film theory class, I discovered that photography is derived from a Greek word that translates to writing and light. This gave me comfort. I concluded that every art form was a way of telling a story, a record of a particular moment in time, even in cases where there was no discernible narrative. Through word and image, I would find a direction for my work. I could write in light. Thank you. Uh, that's just a section from the story. Questions or comments? Nancy? Powerful writing. I, I, I just I just caught in the in the words in the description. I, I love the um, just the little things about the taxi, you know, that uh, choosing economics over being punctual. <laughs> I just I just love the the use of, of your language and, and just just being able to imagine everything as you described it. It was just beautifully written. Thank you. Thank A you. lovely excerpt from the work of Doretta Lau, uh, read by the author on the Powered by Age podcast uh, from all the way back last year, season three, episode five. Uh, and up next, we're going to wrap up this best of episode with a conversation that happened for International Refugee Day. Uh, again, last year, season three, episode 10, uh, featuring a special appearance from Hassan al Kafar who joined the podcast to talk about uh, the realities of uh, life for refugees all over the world. So uh, we'll get to that, and uh, then I'll just come back and say bye right at the very end. Here we go. And we're here to recognize International Refugees Day is June 20th of this year, and it's to raise the state of awareness of refugees around the world. And we are truly honored to have with us Hassan al Kantar, who now is a permanent resident of Canada. He's here to share his story with us. He was raised in a prosperous Syrian home, is a middle child of a mechanical engineer and nurse, 
and he is known as the man at the airport after he spent seven months at the Kuala Lumpur International Airport. Now a permanent resident of Canada based in Vancouver, he's employed by the Canadian Red Cross and continues to advocate for refugees around the world. And he's also the author of his newly published book, Man at the Airport. And uh, we just would love to welcome you, Hassan. Thank you very much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be with you all. I feel uh, blessed, actually, to hear all uh, the stories about fathers. It's such a huge topic for me and my father, and uh, it brings such uh, memories. Uh, and uh, it's one of the hardest and toughest subjects I can ever imagine speaking about, even writing about. I remember myself writing about my father, especially the day he passed away. Um, I could not write that chapter. I kept delaying it because I knew what was waiting for me. So I, I was sweating, shaking. I will write a word or two, line or two. Then I will run outside the house. Uh, having a walk or a cup of coffee or a quick shower, then I would go back to write another line until I finished speaking about my father. He's my forever ideal. And uh, I believe now sitting here in Canada and uh, think, thinking back about uh, my father, he knew somehow that life uh, will be tough on me and I'm going to face some serious situations. So I love to believe that he knew that and he prepared me since I was kid, physically and mentally. He used to take me to our olive farm every weekend to work. And uh, the same day he will grab, at night, he will grab a book and read to me. Uh, I think, uh, uh, discuss politics, history, uh, culture, everything. So the day he uh, died, uh, I was in jail in United Arab Emirates. It was New Year's Eve 2016, and I could see and uh, hear the fireworks, people celebrating New Year's, and uh, I was sitting there uh, in, on, in my cell alone, uh, on the floor, no bed, no pillow, just two blankets, one as a mattress and one as a pillow, uh, looking at my small window and waiting for the sun uh, to rise so I can call my family. That was one of the darkest and lowest moments in my life. That's when I thought that I'm done. I'm, uh, uh, there's nothing more I, I want from this life. And uh, So... Uh, I will give it. I, I will give it all. I will give it all now, just to, for him to to see him for a minute and to tell me how did I do. I can imagine. I can imagine. For those of us and for those in our audience now and and uh, that listen to the recording later, that aren't necessarily familiar with your story and your experience, um, you were born and raised in Syria. Could you share with us just uh, and give us a bit of background of what life was like growing up in Syria? Um, it's, it's strange how the uh, human mind works. The minute you leave your country, uh, your mind will start deleting all the bad memories you have. And uh, all of a sudden, your country will be this ideal place, uh, the most beautiful place. And uh, that's Syria for me. Uh, Syria, and that's for the people who 
don't know much about Syria. All what they know is what they're hearing now from the news uh, about the war, refugees, uh, displaced people, all the uh, distractions going there, all the human suffer. But they don't know much about Syria before the war. Uh, Syria is one of the oldest civilization on earth with a 10,000 year of civilization. Damascus actually, which is the capital of Syria, is the oldest inhabited city on earth. Um, proud people, words like uh, dignity, honor, generosity, uh, means something there. And uh, it's the code we're uh, uh, planning all our life. Um, It used to be a very safe country. Uh, We barely heard about any crimes in Syria before the war. And if any crime happened or took a place, that would be a huge uh, uh, thing to discuss. Um, people are educated culture because uh, education uh, and universities are the only weapon we can use to face the future as Syrians. We are not a rich country. We don't have oil. We are not spoiled like the Gulf Peninsula people. All what we have is our education. So you have a huge medical class people who will provide the society with the engineers, doctors, lawyers, uh, uh, all the artists and uh, Life was good, just a normal life, normal people with dreams, huge dreams of building a better future. And that's why I left Syria, because I knew that um, my dreams, the things I was planning for my future could not happen in Syria. Uh, so I left to United Arab Emirates in 2006. And uh, I started working in insurance as insurance marketing until 2011. Uh, work permit visa and uh, my career was booming everything was great at the end of 2010 I was a branch manager for an insurance company I had all what I dreamed for then all of a sudden uh, because when the Syrian war took place uh, my destiny was controlled by others I was no longer in control of my own destiny so I find myself without a valid passport I lost my work permit because of that, and I start being a illegal immigrant with uh, uh, hiding, um, homeless, jobless, uh, uh, with no place to stay, uh, with no work. Uh, that, that was my life for uh, almost six to seven years until 2000, late 2016, when they captured me, jailed me, and then they detained me in United Arab Emirates in an immigration jail there. Then they deported me to Malaysia. After that, as a Syrian, we know uh, that we have no options. Canadians may ask why he is, uh, why I'm having such a limited option. And that's the, the power of your nationality. That's the crime you did not commit, but you are being uh, 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 holding responsibility because of your nationality only. Uh, as Syrians, we cannot travel anywhere we want. We need to ask for a visa, uh, to, uh, and no country ever will give us visa. So there are three to four countries allowing Syria on arrival visa. One of them is Malaysia. I tried Malaysia. Then I tried to go to Ecuador because, and I don't want to give too much details, not to uh, confuse the audience, but we have in the international law something called the 1951 Refugee Convention. And countries should be uh, a signatory of this convention for you to be able to seek asylum there. Uh, 
Malaysia is not one of them. So I could not seek asylum in Malaysia. I tried to go to Ecuador, but because of my nationality, the Turkish airline uh, employee did not allow me to board. I lost all my money. I lost everything. And then I tried a week later, I tried to go to Cambodia. And that was my last option as a Syrian. Um, they, I arrived to the airport. They did not accept my entry. They sent me back to Malaysia, same day on the same plane. And that's when I stuck at the airport uh, for seven months, followed by two months in detention. So it's all about not me as Hassan, it's me as a Syrian. And that's when I realized that um, the whole world is judging me because of where I was uh, born. And that's when I start understanding that racism could be also geographical uh, term. Uh, because of my nationality, the whole world is unwelcoming me. And that's when I start to take it, uh, decided to take it one step farther and fight for it. Let's bring some noise, I said. So when you got to the airport, you know, held at the airport your first day, of course, you'd have no reasons to know that one day was going to turn into, you know, over 100 days. You know, everything's just unfolding. You know, you would had no idea, no way to know that at the start of being at the airport and, and, you know, not able to go anywhere, that you were going to be there for seven months. So things are unfolding. You don't know what to expect. Um, you know, can you give us an idea of what those first few days were like? Because I would imagine you would True. be caught up in the process of, of trying to, you know, do what you needed to do to move forward. It, uh, it was 270 days, just to correct <laughs> the, the, the math. Uh, when I, the first day, uh, I knew that I'm uh, on a serious, serious problem uh, because I knew that uh, I'm running out of options. I tried them all and they did not work. Uh, did I thought that it's going to be for nine months? No, I did not. Did I knew that um, it's going to turn the way it turned? No, I did not. But uh, the first week I was, uh, I did not even tell my family that I'm stuck at the airport until day 38. They come to know from the news itself. Um, I tried, uh, like a reasonable person, I tried all the official solutions. I tried to contact uh, UNHCR I, and other NGOs, United Nations, Human Rights. I tried uh, even uh, uh, calling and emailing some foreign embassies in Kuala Lumpur, some public figures. Uh, I tried everything and nothing worked. And that's when I knew that... Uh, uh, the only solution uh, is uh, to turn myself to the airport authorities. They will contact the Syrian embassy, get me a ticket, and send me back to Syria. And there, uh, from there, who knows what will happen? I may end up disappear. And uh, then um, it's the same question I always ask. I asked uh, the United Arab Emirates people. I asked Malaysian, uh, Cambodian would you do the same if I was holding a Canadian, Australian, USA, or any Europe uh, passport? And a week after uh, I stopped at the airport, I discovered the answer. I, I said, no, they will not do the same. 
if I was holding any other uh, passport. It's because of my nationality. And that's when I decided if I'm going down, I'm going down with a, a, with a fight. Uh, the small problems, the things we as a human being take for granted in life, um, all of a sudden they become major issues, major problems, uh, things we take for granted. Uh, when to sleep, where to sleep, how to sleep, where to take a shower, when to take a shower, how to clean your clothes, how to dry them, uh, what to do if you are hungry, what to do if you are sick, what to do if you don't have a charger, what to do if you want even a cup of coffee in the morning. All these small details, the small things become a major problem. And it will, it's an evidence that uh, I'm not in a normal situation. The, the smell of a fresh air, uh, the ability to control uh, the lights in your environment, uh, to turn them on or off, or the temperature, um, they, are, they all taken away from me. And uh, I find myself during all the months struggle to solve these small problems. Uh, just to give myself a small hint that I'm I'm still a normal human being, and uh, uh, and the authorities there it was a hostile environment, especially after the media. They uh, I was the enemy for the whole country, and uh, I was under surveillance 24 hours, seven days a week. Uh, they were surrounding me, investigating me sometimes seven to eight uh, times a day, every time for hour or two. Uh, they will make me up 2 a.m. And uh, I did not have a sense of a normal day, like a day and night, because of the flights and the noise. Uh, uh, they tried uh, all what they can to, uh, to make me give up. Uh, they denied my entry to the duty-free just to eat or have a cup of coffee. And the duty-free was one floor above me, uh, and I could not reach it. So all this small things which should teach us as a human being that take nothing for granted. And, uh, Did you use any of your writing ability to help you with your mindset through those difficult times? Yes, uh, but um, uh, I think a lot. And uh, even before the airport, uh, and uh, it's exhausting sometimes to be in my head. Uh, I think about everything, and things seems to be silly sometimes. And uh, um, it, it's my wings to escape my reality, to think and write, and uh, to live between the words. All of a sudden, the words will become your friends, and the ideas, thoughts, emotions in your head will become your uh, sanctuary. Uh, and it helped me. Uh, it uh, People, after the media, people start uh, approaching me and bringing me some books. That uh, was also good. Uh, so, but uh, with, with, with authorities who are investigating you eight times a day, it's not, not the, the, the perfect environment to read or to write. So. No, not at all. It, it, it was a war zone. Could you share with us how you started to interact and, and make that decision to use social media to start, you know, supporting yourself and, and, and counteract what was going on, at least get the news out that, because I mean, eventually you got connected um, uh, to Canadians mm. uh, that helped Laurie Cooper, correct, from the Whistler area was one of the oh. main people. 
And um, so maybe you could just share with us, you know, what started that process in terms of, like you say, reaching out and connecting. It was a desperate solution, yet blank one. Uh, I did not, uh, it was not the first thing I uh, think of when I was at the airport. Uh, I did not even think about social media at the beginning because I thought we have uh, an international community. We have laws, we have uh, regulations, we have uh, conventions, and someone should stood up to help me because uh, I'm in a desperate situation. And when I start receiving all the uh, sorry emails that we cannot do anything, uh, even from those organizations who we as refugees are the purpose of their existence. Uh, they said, we cannot do anything. And then I thought, um, now I'm going to fight this one. I had no idea that it, it's going to work. But coming from a marketing background and with some education and some English skills, I knew that it should be a campaign somehow. I should plan this one. So uh, I thought I would be myself to smile, make others smile, to show them who we are as Syrians because um, people normally will complain in such situation. If they are in my position, they will complain, they will shout, they will cry, they will uh, uh, just be, um, people have their own misery, they have their own tragedies, and I will be just someone who's crying. Uh, and I decided not to, I decided to make them smile. And uh, I was saying always that I'm explaining my story, I'm not uh, complaining, and uh, I'm telling my story, I'm not selling it. Uh, so I planned the th thing, but I had no idea that it's going to work. I will give you an example, in day 35, and that was 10 days or 15 days after I started the social media. I did not work at the beginning. So I thought uh, I will Google myself and uh, I found three results. Two of them are linked to my tweets. And I felt, what is the point of using this? It's not clearly not working. That was day 35. But I decided not to give up because I had no other option. Uh, in day 38, three days after uh, the first search, I did another search, and it was 27,000. Wow. And that's when I knew that uh, I got their attention now. And uh, it's, it's, it's amazing how uh, social media works and the power it gives you, because all of a sudden... Uh, Hassan, the voiceless, the hopeless, the powerless Syrian refugee, become more uh, Hassan, the global citizenship, um, who belong, who has people, individual, ordinary people supporting him and speaking about him. And that has a huge impact, not only on the authorities in Malaysia, it has a huge impact on the NGOs and uh, uh, United Nations organization, all of a sudden they showed up at the airport and they induct an interview, which makes me think about what about others, those who could not make it the way I made it, what about those who are voiceless and uh, they still need help. Um, th that's what gave me the, still giving me the guilty uh, feeling that why, how did I make it, why did I make it when others did not. Um, I got help. I got help at one point from people, but I 
I insisted. I I understood life because of my father. I understood life differently, and I acted uh, according to that. Did the um, did you have controversy created out of it as well? As much as you started to get support for you rallying through the social media, was there some controversy that came from it? Oh. Uh, thousands of thousands of negative and hate emails and uh, uh, messages and comments. Uh, um, I was, despite, it doesn't matter what I was going to say or not say, I was embarrassing Malaysia. Uh, that's what the officials there mm-hmm. told me. I, uh, you are a great source of embarrassing and uh, a threat for our national security. And uh, mm-hmm. to make, uh, I, I made them look bad. And for people are with the blind bit, uh, bitterism, I, I call it. Uh, people love their country and they will defend it no matter what. They will not listen to you. Uh, they will not accept any excuse you give. You are embarrassing them. They will hate you for that. So there is one country, if you open the world map, right now there is one country who is who hates me no matter what i did or did not do because i embarrassed them so um, it's not a pleasant feeling it's it's, it's annoying and it's a bad feeling but it's the truth and uh, until now i keep received some bad messages uh, even from disparate people uh, refugees and uh, um, they ask for help but they don't know that i cannot help they think that somehow I owe the system in Canada. I own the system. And uh, uh, they don't even uh, think that I, I'm still not able to help my own family. All what I can do is to speak publicly publicly about the refugee crisis. But I cannot help on an individual level. And uh, because of that, they will start cursing me and uh, send me. And I understand. I forgive them. They are desperate. They need a solution. Unfortunately, I'm not the one who can offer this or salvation. And that's one of your dreams. Uh, one of your dreams is to close that gap, isn't it? Between the East and the West. That's on a culture. Yes, that's that's why the, I wrote the book. It's um, uh, when I arrived to Canada, People, uh, when, uh, when people ask me where I'm from, and I will say Syria, they will start uh, uh, showing all kinds of kindness, empathy, and sympathy. And they, uh, they seem to know a big deal about the Syrian war, and uh, they know something about the Syrian refugee crisis, but they know nothing about the Syrian culture, who we are, and how our, our life looked like before the war. Uh, so I wrote the book to humanize us as Syrians and uh, um, to, um, to make Westerns understand uh, our mentality, our uh, behaviors, our traditions, our history. And uh, we once, um, we have been a proud nation once. We still a proud nation, very proud and uh, uh, dignity, uh, honor, and uh, bravery, uh, generosity, something we live on, uh, or something we believe on. And uh, the, the world has changed us somehow as Syrians, and this is something I understand. But, and this is why I was saying this morning that uh, I don't think wars should be measured by uh, the numbers of casualties or uh, how many uh, destroyed house. It should be measured by the impact uh, it made on those who are still living, how it changed them because it 
we need decades to to heal the souls and uh, to recover from what we have uh, it will goes forever the same way uh, we feel connected with the indigenous people here that 215 children we just found and that uh, it's something it's gonna be there and uh, how long it will take us to recover and reconciliation from that it's the same story for us as syrian um and um uh, there is a lot to say on this behalf, but uh, my book is just an attempt uh, uh, that uh, one day, the one day they will understand us more. Uh, they, they will delete this stereotype they have in their mind. Whenever you speak about Syrians, they will think unskilled, uneducated people, kids in refugee camps with no education, no health care tears, blood, uh, uh, bombs, missiles, air, aircrafts. That's what they think uh, Syria is. And that's not the truth. That's how Syrians are skilled and educated people. All what they want is a teeny tiny opportunity and they will turn it into a, a, a liquid gold. Uh, they know how to work. And they still have, although they went through a lot, they still have a lot to give back to the communities. And that's why I'm working now with Red Cross. We still have energy to give back and uh, uh, to be creative. Uh, th that's what I was trying to, to say uh, in the book. Uh, from a Syrian point of view, but it also have a personal point of view, the human soul, and how people, when they face a Syrian, serious, serious situations, they think that uh, of giving up. And we always hear this term, uh, giving up is not an option. Well, that's true. I cannot agree more. It's not an option, but what is it? It should be something. It cannot be nothing. From what I uh, went through, I believe it's a result. It's a result for us not trying enough, not believing in what we are doing, not uh, be in love with what we are doing, for us looking for an instant results when life is not. And that's a lesson I learned from my father and from my olive farm. A farmer will be four to five years uh, uh, as an effort watering the, uh, the, the olive trees. And it, he, the tree will not give him a single olive for four to five years, and he will keep working on it on a daily basis. And uh, then uh, that's the contract. And then it will start giving him uh, all the, imagine his uh, feeling when he see uh, uh, the first olive uh, after four to five years. And that's life. Uh, we, we uh, our lowest moment, our dark moment uh, is our motive. And uh, if we are seeking a different result, we need to push ourselves out of our comfort zone because we need to take the risk. Uh, um, we, uh, we will discover that who we become uh, during our march towards our uh, dreams is more important than the dream itself. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's what I was trying to say at the book. On the seats of that journey. Uh, really gripping, moving stuff from Hassan Al-Kafar, guest on the Powered by Age podcast last year, last summer, for International Refugee Day. Uh, that's it for this episode of the podcast. Uh, next week, we should be back to brand new, fresh content. So uh, hopefully you've enjoyed this look backwards at uh, what Powered by Age has done and uh you can look forward to what we're gonna do with the podcast in the future so uh i'll see you next time bye